Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show this week. Well, this week I'm on the road again. I'm, uh, I'm traveling, so I thought I'd do something of a short and sweet or quick fire type of podcast. And I'm going to share with you some of the questions and indeed some of the answers to those questions that uh, I got posed in a, in a recent social meetup with, uh, with property investors um, we, we held in London last week. So um, we had a bit of a social gathering. It was very informal. We, it was um, in a pub. Um, me and my business partner, Damien, we met up and the idea was to meet existing contacts that we already have, but also some new people and just socialize and, and talk property without any strings attached and get to know one another. So um, so we did that. So um, I'm just going to pose a couple of the questions that I got posed and just give you a bit of a snapshot answer. They won't be necessarily be heavily detailed, but there'll be a bit of a snapshot, snapshot answer rather. So let's get on with that right now. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. Yes, so we held the, um, the social meetup that I talked about and um, I think we're going to do that again. I think the only real learning from the evening was it didn't actually preliminary reserve a table. So we're a bit, you know, crammed into uh, one section of the uh, of the pub. It was very busy in uh, in central London, in uh, close to King's Cross Station. So uh, that's probably the biggest learning that we had. But apart from that, I think it was a good time had by all. Certainly the feedback that I had from the people who attended, they seemed to enjoy it. And um, in fact, I had a couple of comments along the lines of this is not like any of the property meetup that I've ever been to. Uh, for a start, we didn't, you know, invite anybody to pull out a credit card um, and, and, and buy a course or something like that. So that's perhaps why. But I think there were some other reasons as well. In fact, that particular gentleman who made that observation, uh, he made quite a few observations which seemed to be um, a revelation to him, actually, in, in many respects. But we'll talk about that perhaps uh, in a second or two. But I just wanted to talk about some of the questions that I got posed uh, during the course of the evening, uh, the, the probably other ones, but some of, these are some of the questions I got posed. In fact, one or two of them more than once for sure. So um, it does kind of you know lean to uh, being on the top of people's minds. Certainly, if they're looking to get involved or expand their interests in in property. And and one of them, the the first question I'm going to deal with really came from a few people, and it was um, it was all about seeking out explosive capital growth. That's the way I'm going to phrase it: explosive capital growth. And uh, looking for sort of hot spots. And if I frame that up, one of the people I was speaking to was saying, where would you say, and this question posed to me, where would you say is going to be the next UK of the 1980s? And I obviously asked, what, what do you mean by that exactly? And the answer came, well, something like 600% capital growth in a decade or so. Um, now, I'm not sure it was 600 in the 80s. I think it might have got up to about 400% over a 10-year period, uh, you know, over the over a period of the 70s and the 80s. I think you probably can say that there was explosive growth in property prices. I talked recently about how frequently property prices double and certainly 70s and 80s were rich times, if you like, uh, in that respect for the UK market. And um, his follow-up point was, uh, for example, I think Cro- Croatia might be an example. Uh, 
of such a thing. So I was really interested in well, why why is this? What what you know? What's behind your your interest in doing this? And he's basically saying, well, not that I need income in the short term, but I'm just looking for some you know long term investment that's got really explosive you know high high capital growth potential. And where I can, you know, park my funds for a period of time, obviously quite a reasonable period of time. We're talking here 10 to 20 years potentially, and uh, and then see this sort of explosive six times, you know, type of uh, of growth. And there was a sim- there was another person who was asking a similar question: is how do you know that you're going to pick an area that's got high capital growth and this sort of thing? The emphasis being on high. So. Let's just break that down a little bit and sort of summarize some of my response. Um, my first response was, I don't know. And, um, and that, I didn't mean it flippantly. Uh, what I was trying to illustrate by saying, and I did obviously elaborate by saying, I don't know, is that it's speculation. Um, so uh, when I'm saying, uh, I don't know, it means I could guess. Uh, I could even you know, talk about some of the factors that I would put into guessing the answer to that question. Is Croatia going to be a hotspot that's going to deliver something like six times um, house price growth in a decade? I don't know. It could do. But I seem to remember, and I'm sure many of you might remember, Bulgarian ski resorts may be promising to do the same. The Polish market promising to do the same. So again, Eastern Europe, I'm keeping the focus kind of relevant, uh, just before the last property crash. And um, I haven't checked, but I haven't heard a lot of noise about Bulgaria ski resorts and, and some of the Polish market achieving that kind of growth. Now, I'm not saying that you can't identify a hotspot and a hotspot for me is defined as an area or location that can outperform the general marketplace. That for me is a hotspot. So you you do get natural um, house price growth over time. Again, in a week, couple of weeks ago, we talked about that. Um, that perhaps you know over the long term average, the UK market has seen something like doubling of house prices every ten years, purely on average over a fifty five year period. But there have been periods of time where um, there's been fairly stagnant growth or modest growth. And there's also been periods of time where there's been quite explosive growth. And we just talked about that. 70s and 80s was a high explosive growth. Early 2000s was pretty rapid growth. So, um, but a hotspot is somewhere that outperforms the general market. So, of course, if you're looking at averages across the whole of the UK, you will have seen certain quarters of the UK which would have outperformed um, those areas. And let me give you an example. If you look at Aberdeen, Aberdeen outperformed the general market for quite some time. It's a little bit different today. And the reason it's that influenced Aberdeen in particular was oil. So, um, you know, North Sea oil, it attracted a lot of people working in the oil industry and um, there was a boom, basically. And the boom was, you know, exceptional because it was a small area delivering um, something with, with, you know, high growth itself, an industry which fueled high growth, i.e. the oil industry. And of course, there was limited supply of housing to service that demand. So we had this sort of pressure, this demand pressure, um, and, a, and a sort of limited supply, uh, certainly for a period of time, and that drove the housing market in Aberdeen. Another example was potentially Brighton of recent past, and you know, that London on the Sea, I think this nickname is, you know, it's quite accessible to London, and a lot of people moved down there or had a, a second home, that, that kind of thing. Uh, so Brighton was another one that had you know explosive growth. Similarly, more recently, we've got Margate, Margate in Kent, 
which was um, and the, the, the slight difference with well Brighton was became fashionable um, or, or perhaps always was maybe um, whereas Margate was unfashionable certainly recently Margate you know declined you know in in, in the sort of last 50 years or so it's, it's been declining uh, but it's got some very nice properties it's very accessible to London and um, it's seen something of a rejuvenation recently and this uh, created uh, a sort of desire amongst people to perhaps go out there similarly with South End on Sea but for slightly different reasons South End on Sea became kind of a commuter town if you like Margate became uh, almost a, a bijou type of uh, getaway from the city uh, and people also wanted to live there they could get into London as well from there so Margate Brighton South End on Sea Aberdeen just go and look them up and you'll see that they in the recent times they've outperformed the market so there are some clues I've just given there how can you identify a hotspot and fundamentally a hotspot is is really where you're likely to see demand exceed supply over and beyond what you would normally see in the natural market so I gave some clues economic growth in the case of Aberdeen um, a fashionable um, you know place to be like in Brighton um, a less desirable location becoming desirable um, other other factors could be increased transport links for example crossrail for example now is going to drive you know the house prices in certain quarters over and beyond the natural marketplace but the thing is they're not going to drive them the um, house price growth necessarily at 600 percent in a decade i'm not you know necessarily expecting that you know, so slough for example which is going to have a crossrail station and become even faster or maidenhead a little bit further down the line have been having rapid access into london very rapid access into london in fact i am expecting to be hotspots i.e they will outperform the general market whether we're going to see explosive growth at 600 percent i'm i don't know i don't know and that's speculation i doubt it in in all in all you know realistic terms uh, because you've got to look at the baseline where they start from and you know can it realistically get above and sustain high price uh, growth over a period of time always have to go and look at fundamentals and always talk about this look at fundamentals fundamentals are things like supply and demand in the local area employment transport links the local amenities that are available to people going to buy local schools or educational establishments these are the fundamentals that underpin any market and contrast that for example to what happened in Bulgaria what happened in Ireland what happened in parts of Poland uh, leading up to the last housing housing price crash so in the UK the fundamentals were sound in a lot of the UK and we've seen recovery we've seen house prices recover back to where they were but um, I, I'll talk about Ireland slightly separately but places like Bulgaria and their ski chalets what were the fundamentals that were underpinning the drive in house prices they weren't really there it was purely speculation the house prices were driven up by speculators piling into the marketplace buying up properties and thinking well this is going to take off Bulgaria is going to be a fantastic ski resort now it could have been um, and it could have been the next uh, Austria who knows but um, and it had it had it have been of course then you would have seen probably a low baseline turn into quite a high um, house price growth over time but the last time I checked, I didn't see you know massive interest in skiing in Bulgaria, certainly on the circuit and that kind of thing. So in other words, it didn't really sustain. And if you were investing there, it probably didn't work out so well. Similarly, Ireland, or uh, specifically Dublin, uh, in the lead up to the last crash, 
there was, again, investors were piling into the area, but it wasn't based on fundamentals. In other words, what was the natural you know, supply, uh, supply and demand mix in the area, and in particular demand, what was underpinning demand in the area? What was underpinning demand in the area was, was greedy investors. And of course, once greedy investors, after that last housing price crash, got burned, a lot of them just exited the market. There was no longer a reason for them to be there. There weren't fundamentals, there weren't locals, in other words, wishing to buy or rent property. It was purely this influx of investors, and it was an unnatural event. So um, the, the bubble of Ireland popped, uh, as it were, and there were ghost, literally ghost towns in certain quarters. Now, I know that Dublin in particular is recovering at the moment, and I'm hoping that that is fueled by fundamentals, but it, it certainly hasn't seen this explosive growth on a sustained long-term basis. So I kind of, <laughs> that's where I wanted to go to, is that, you know, it's speculation. And and broadly, my answer, my response is this. Personally speaking, I'd rather be, be more in control of my, my destiny when I'm talking about uh, returns in property. So I'm very much, personally speaking, what I call a value investor. So short term, I'm not, well, not necessarily short term, but generally I want to be in control. So if it's income, I want to be able to predict what my income returns are going to be. But of course, here the question is about capital growth or capital returns. Well, I could try um, and find the next hotspot, um, and in particular, the next explosive hotspot. Um, if I was to do that, I certainly wouldn't be putting all of my money into it. So if Croatia is the one, I wouldn't be putting 100% of my available capital into Croatia and gambling. That's effectively like going into the casino and putting everything on green, you know, the zero, because it's like that the odds are, are pretty steep. Now, maybe you can lessen the odds in some way. I'm not saying all on black, all on red, but equally, it's still a gamble, even if it was. And let's say you chose Croatia as the next uh, high growth explosive area, and it turned out to be Serbia and not Croatia at all. Well, what happens to your money then? You've, you've put it all in one place, you've gambled, it hasn't quite paid off. So the first thing I would say is don't put all of your money there. Have, by all means, have a play with maybe five to 10% of your available capital. That might be worth a, a go. Find, you know, find a location that you think has got this explosive growth potential and, and maybe put five to 10% of your pot there. But of course, if your pot's 25,000, then two and a half thousand pounds or less isn't really going to make a lot of difference anyway. So, and maybe a second point is, well, if you think that's going to work, then find a fund that's investing in a broad number of assets or East European, East Europe rather in general. So um, you, then you sort of ride out the highs and lows um, in doing that. So maybe allocating some part of your, of your money, not all of your money uh, would be one of the things I would say. So talking about control, what I personally look to do is force the appreciation. So we're talking about capital appreciation here. Capital appreciation is how house prices go of grow. So you've got two types. You've got natural capital appreciation, which is how the market tends to move over time, which can potentially be improved through looking for potential hotspots, as I've talked about. This explosive growth idea is a gamble, so maybe only a small part of your percentage investment goes there. The alternative to that is what I call forcing the appreciation. Now, I had a very interesting conversation with an architect who, who joined, uh, joined us last week. And um, of course, an architect knows about property. He knows how to improve a property's condition um, by building extensions, loft conversions, and all the rest of it. You know, we've been talking about residential property. And so he had the technical skills to understand what I was talking about. And, um, and so he was also asking the question about looking for capital growth. And I talked about forcing the appreciation. 
Now, forcing the appreciation is adding value to a property over a short period of time such that you outperform the local market by the improvements that you've made. I've given a couple of examples. For example, building an extension, building a loft conversion, uh, maybe splitting the uh, property up into segments, whether that's as an HMO into rooms or title splitting it, selling it as flats, those sorts of things. They're examples of forcing the appreciation. And a lot of people are cottoning onto this idea. So the, the type of margin that is often available to be achieved or realized in this case has been more squeezed of late. Because in other words, there's more developers or aspiring developers looking for these sorts of opportunity. And uh, therefore, the price is tending to go up a bit um, for, for suitable types of property. So margins have been a little bit squeezed but there are still good opportunities out there to force the appreciation. And uh, I'd rather have something like a 20% return over, a, over a, a fairly short period of time within a year, you know, 20% return within a year, which will outperform natural capital uh, appreciation, probably. We're talking about average house price growth in the UK was around about 5%. So if I can undertake a project where I can force the appreciation, get a quick burst return of say 20%, just to pick a number, could be 15, I don't know, I'm just picking a number, uh, but certainly above the natural market of say five, I can be in and out of a project and I can move into the next project. And if I repeat that a number of times, well, I'm probably going to get, you know, really good returns, certainly over a 10 year period. And I can, if I can pick my projects well, I can recycle them uh, so that I'm probably doing multiple projects at the same time or recycling my funds several times over a year. Realistically, you know, perhaps once once every nine months is a realistic time for a flip. So every 18 months, I'd do two projects. Over three years, I would do um, obviously four projects over that period of time. So um, it can't, it won't necessarily be twice a year, but ideally that would be. Um, but it's not always it's not always possible. So if I'm doing my 15 to 20 percent recycling it every six to six to 12 months on average, I'm going to be outperforming the local market in the large majority of cases. I mean, if we are in crazy times where the market's performing at 15 percent you know, annual capital growth and it's, it is literally the 80s, then maybe you don't need to do any of this forcing the appreciation at all. And in fact, all you really need to do is just sit and wait. Um, but we're not in that climb at the moment. So there we go. I think I kind of wanted to give that uh, response that it's it's there's um, it's, it's speculative. Certainly, long term to put all your to to try and uh, realize those sort of explosive growth over long term and identify a Croatia or, or something like that. I'm not saying Croatia. Nothing against Croatia. I just don't know if it's going to achieve something like a 600% capital growth, house price growth over a decade or so. And it's a long time to wait. And once you get there, what if it was wrong and it you know was next door and you, you didn't do that well? So I think you get my point. So I'd rather be in control of my destiny. I'd rather be talking about forcing the appreciation and I'd rather be maybe allocating my funds so that my riskier uh, funds allocation is, is, is limited and I'm not just weighting everything into that one space. So just to go back to the architect, uh, he literally, I'm not joking, he actually said, I need to go home, I need to write all this down because you guys have blown my mind. Uh, and he literally said that and he followed up in an email, I can show you the email, um, so I'm not making it up. Um, he didn't quite, you know, he understood, that's what I was going to say, he understood the technicalities of property as an architect, 
but didn't quite realize how he could put that to use for his own personal investment you know uh, purposes and achieve the sort of gains that um, that we talked about over the conversation so um he was very generous with his um, his praise and feedback for the evening and he did drop it in in writing and i'm expecting to see uh, some great things coming out of um, of what he's going to do particularly with his skill set of being an architect so he's already got a bit of a leg up i suppose um, but you, everyone here who's listening and being educated can also have that similar leg up because you can increase your knowledge. Um, so it's, we're always talking about having three main components, knowledge, time and, and money. So um, you, you need at least one of those, ideally two, uh, to, be able to, uh, to be able to be successful in property. So anyway, that was the first question I kind of wanted to cover. The, the, the other question um, I really wanted to get uh, into was um, there are a couple of more um, technical ones but the second one i really want to get into was how do i get started as an investor what should i do to get to get started up and i think there's obviously going to be a quite a, a common question clearly for anyone who's starting out or is at the fairly early stage of their journey and there was another uh, young chap i was talking to and he was working in london he was originally from hull and um, he had limited uh, funds to start investing so naturally made sense for him to be maybe looking in Hull rather than London because it was more affordable to get into the marketplace there and I, I agree with him um, it would it would be and by the way talking about fundamentals as I was earlier um, when I talked about the explosive capital growth Hull has got some decent fundamentals as well I mean it was mentioned once or twice it was the city of culture um, but that's not really a fundamental that's one of the things could, that could drive interest for a period of time and it could maybe lead it to be a hotspot potential as was things like the renewable energies drive in the industry mm, we talked about Aberdeen and what was driving that so um, there's a renewables energy drive there's regeneration in the old town in Hull the um, transport links are a little bit difficult with Hull because it's on the edge of the country um, so so is Brighton but it, Brighton's accessible to London Hull isn't so accessible to some of the, the major cities it is obviously a small city in its own right so the transport links idea isn't quite the same it's got a university so that's a good driver an indicator for uh, the um, academic side of things so there's a good sort of few things that are going for Hull actually so I, I agree with the chap but Really, in terms of getting going, um, there are a couple of things that he was talking about, which perhaps would take him down the wrong path, um, so or would lead to, let's say, an unsustainable model. And let me give you an example. Um, he was potentially talking about taking either a residential mortgage or a buy-to-let mortgage to undertake a flip, a property flip. So that's buying and selling a property at a profit over a short period of time. And um, I cautioned him against this, as, as you would, because. Um, you might actually get away with it, possibly. Well, first of all, you'd be lying to the lender of what your intentions were, uh, because if you're literally trying to buy it, do it up and sell it on in a short period of time, you take a residential mortgage and you're actually really living and working in London, that's, that's you know, it doesn't really qualify for residential mortgage, but you are entitled to have, let's say, a second home and that sort of thing, or commute from long distance or have a weekend home. So, if you discuss, if you discuss, uh, excuse me, disclosed it in the right way, potentially you would uh, be okay. Potentially, but you wouldn't do this. It's not sustainable. You couldn't go buy one, and sell it on, and then buy another one and do it again, and don't buy another one and do it again. It's not sustainable, and certainly the lenders are going to start to have a look at you if that's the case. And it's a similar story if you took out a buy-to-let mortgage too, um, because buy-to-let is designed for long-term investment. 
residential mortgages designed for you to live in the property as your home. Now, if it's a building site, it's unlikely you're going to be living in it as your home. If it's a long way from where you work, lenders are going to ask questions. It, you know, it's mortgage fraud. Let's just you know get it out in the open. It's mortgage fraud if you lie on your application. And where I'm going with this, and even if it's not mortgage fraud, even if um, you found a buy-to-let loan, for argument's sake, which had no or low early redemption penalties, so in other words, you went in, it was quite a low interest rate, and then you you sold the property within a year, having done the work, and you know you paid a, a nominal early redemption penalty, which is what puts people off anyway because high redemption penalties makes it akin to bridging finance anyway um, and then go off and do it again you might get blacklisted there is a blacklist a lender's blacklist you don't want to be on it and this is what I was saying to this new investor finance is the lifeblood of the property investor and you know every property investor pretty much uses finance at some point or in some way or another so it's your lifeblood as an investor so don't do anything to jeopardize that so that was the first thing. And I think, you know, perhaps some of the questions came out of ignorance. Um, some of the questions perhaps maybe other people are advising um, him to do. And that would be poor advice. If someone is advising you to do those things, be very, very, in fact, I actually was stronger than this in the meeting in our, in, our, in our social. And I said, run, run away. Somebody starts talking to you, do it this way, use wrong kind of financing. I'd run away from that person because ethically it wouldn't be right. And actually, you could find yourself in a lot of trouble if you follow that advice in, for a consistent basis. You might get away with it for a little while, as I mentioned. But actually, after time, you potentially put your whole investment um, journey at risk through short-term gain. So it's just not worth it. So that was the thing. But he talked more generally about what should I do to get started. And uh, just before I digress into that, I mean, I'll move on to that. He also talks about his uh, father being able to help, who's a retired, uh, I believe a retired um, architect, running a recurring theme here. So would help, be able to help with contacts and that sort of thing in the local area back in Hull. Yep, that's a good idea. And it's going to be really useful to have that. But when he went on to say he could do some of the work for free, it, it's not sustainable. Um, so maybe, you know, good old dad would lend a hand and could certainly introduce people to, to help like contractors and that sort of thing, but getting in and actually doing work in the property, um, maybe do it once uh, to help out um, their son or something like that uh, to get going. But it's not sustainable. It's slave labor, let's face it. So it's not really sustainable. I'm sure dad would get a bit fed up if uh, he said, oh, okay, I've got another project, got another project, got another project, and wasn't getting paid. It's not a sustainable model, so you need to be looking beyond that. Um, maybe to get going, help build a fund, but after that, it's a case of, you know, the father would need to be rewarded too in some way, I'm sure. Otherwise, he might be having a friendly word in the ear of the son. So that was the other thing. But in terms of getting started, here are the things I would say to anyone who's looking to get involved in property. The first thing is don't rush out and do anything in the immediate you know, uh, future. So once you want to get started, um, spend maybe three months, maybe even six months educating yourself. And when I say educating yourself, I'm not necessarily saying you go and you know, spend money, expensive money on a course or, or, or some sort of mentorship. You don't necessarily have to do that. There are lots of uh, free and low cost resources available to you um, right from the, from the beginning. In fact, just with me and the Property Voice, you've got this podcast, you've got my blog posts, you've got, um, if you subscribe just freely on the website, you can see all of my uh, Your Property Network magazine articles. Even if you subscribe to Your Property Network magazine, it's six or seven pounds a month. So lots of quality information for a nominal price. I've written a book, which is 
you know the cost of a cup of coffee which you get you going as well so there's a lot of foundational things that you can um, work through there add to this you know attending the odd property networking meeting um, keep your credit cards at home is uh, my only byline to that so uh, plug into maybe a forum a property forum online that um, catches your your fancy there are different flavors of forum uh, there's groups on Facebook there's uh, forums that are in the in the in the out um, general online community and they all have a different uh, flavor or culture or way in which they work and appeal to certain different types of people so have a look at what's out there is what, you, what I'm saying really and then pick one that's maybe for you so you know so there's quite a lot of things you can do really um, as a new investor but don't rush as I say don't rush out and try and buy a property don't rush out and dive into the first training course uh, we offer a, a fairly cost-effective training course which is a hundred or two hundred pounds which is very foundational. Um, that's just, you know, if you talk about that kind of investment, whether it's ours or somebody else's, but it covers a broad spectrum of things you can do in property. Uh, you know, it's probably a good idea to do um, something like that. But don't don't go crazy, is what I'm saying. So spend three or six months getting yourself educated, putting yourself out there. Don't dive in, into anything too soon. Don't don't get the shiny penny syndrome. Don't don't get uh, tempted to dive in too soon. Is is what I would recommend. Unless, of course, you had a very significant burning need that you needed to fulfill in the short term. And if you did do that, I'd probably recommend you get some um, experienced input into what you're trying to do. Because the next thing I'm about to say is once you do get going, it's all about aligning with your own personal goals, um, your timeline, your personal resources and and, and your preferences, really. So um, don't talk about strategy until you've identified what your goals are. So what do you want to achieve? When do you want to achieve it? Put a number against that, both financially and time. And uh, that's all good goals have got numbers in them. And um, what are your strengths? Uh, what resources do you have available? What are your gaps? Um, work that out. And we've got a couple of tools and systems that can help do that. Drop me a line. I'm happy to talk to you about what, what I would suggest in that respect. And, um, and start there because the flavor of the month strategy um, the current doing the rounds strategy might not be actually appropriate for you. It might not actually meet your needs. So don't talk, never talk about strategy at the beginning. Talk about personal goals and personal situation and then work back into what is the most appropriate strategy for me. Because some people find themselves doing something which is just... And do, but the, one of the big ones is, is personal preferences. So um, if, if it doesn't suit you, then you'll be going against the grain. It'll be very difficult for you to operate. So don't start with strategy, please. Start with getting educated, start with understanding what your personal goals and personal situation are. And then after that, start to look at what is the right thing for you to get involved in personally. So <clears throat> take your time and do that. So there's a couple of sort of more the you know big bigger issues that came out and the recurring themes that came out. The, the last one I, I kind of wanted just to touch on more briefly, just because of where I'm with time at the moment, is there was a specific question of, um, around joint ventures. And uh, one of the one of the attendees on the evening was talking about how best do I structure a joint venture um, arrangement? It's uh, it's with a friend. Um, that was that was all I was really um, given in terms of the context. Well, my response to that was something along the lines of get it documented. Um, whatever you do, even if it's your best friend, even if it's your mum, <laughs> you know, just even if it's your brother, whatever, it get it documented. So lots of people, they don't put in writing what is being agreed as a joint venture arrangement. 
And it's not just what's been agreed. Are we agreed to share everything 50-50? Mm. That kind of might be fairly logical. There could be other things. What happens if it goes wrong? Uh, what sort of timeline will we work on? Is this per project? Is this a longer term arrangement? Um, what are the respective roles um, of each of the parties? How will you reach your agreement if there's deadlock? Because there's two of you and it's 50-50. You both need to agree. What if you can't? You need to refer that perhaps to, to a third party or a body that can help. Um, there's um, what, what things are allowed as costs that can be booked against your project. There's those sorts of things. So um, joint ventures, they, they, they can be useful because obviously the, you're leveraging um, a couple of people's resources and talents, ideally. Uh, maybe you're pulling money um, together. And by the way, buy to let doesn't always lend itself to a joint venture agreement unless you do the one for you, one for me type of approach because it's probably better to have ownership in individual names and a long-term buy-to-let basis, <clears throat> excuse me, rather than having um, joint ownership over an extended period of time, because you often find things change. That's my key point. Things can change. Things can go wrong. Even the best of friendships could be ruined, unfortunately, if something goes wrong. It's always best to have it um, documented in writing. So that was really my main advice there. Have it documented in writing. If you need to get a solicitor to get it drawn up, get a solicitor to get it drawn up. It'll just, you know, a few hundred pounds or so to get a decent joint venture agreement drawn up. All of our joint ventures have all of the things I'm talking about uh, documented so it's quite clear what the roles are, what the exit strategy is, what the contingencies are, what the deadlock arrangements are going to be, what the timeline is what's allowed and what's not allowed it's all there in our joint venture agreement I think it I can't remember I think it's uh, several it's, it's double digit pages long um, it's com it's it's not complicated it's straightforward it's plain English but everything's there it's clear and there should be no no dispute let's say if things could go wrong so <laughs> at the end of the day one party might not be happy for whatever reason they might want to get out sooner than the other party but it shouldn't lead to a dispute so get it documented in writing is all I'd really say about that. And uh, again, just drop me a line. I'm, I'll probably give you some pointers if uh, if you're thinking about doing that kind of thing. So long and short of it is I just really wanted to cover off a few of the questions that uh, came up on the social meetup we had last week. So many of the people who attended are either new or early stage investors. So these questions are quite typical. Um, you know, looking for high capital growth, um, joint ventures and, and mortgage finance and this sort of thing. Um, they're, they're quite typical uh, questions, obviously, how to get started. Uh, they already are starting by being there in that environment. So um, how to get started as an investor, they're very, very typical. So I just wanted to raise those in a, in a sort of top level way in the podcast this week. So uh, hopefully that's been interesting and, and useful to you. Uh, and even if you're more experienced and uh, you're perhaps looking to, you know, throw some money into the next, um, ex, you know, explosive uh, capital growth area, maybe it's just made you have a little think about the best way of doing that. So um, there you go. That was uh, what I wanted to cover this week. Hopefully, that's, as I say, been useful. By all means, drop me a line, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net if you want to discuss anything in, uh, discussed in uh, today's show. There'll be some show notes available at the website, thepropertyvoice.net as well. So pop over there and, and see what you can find. Uh, although I'm not doing transcriptions of the show at the moment, um, partly because of my no, mobile arrangements. Um, so let me know if that's actually a problem because I'm just giving it a go without a detailed transcription right now. But there we go. Well, I just want to draw a line this week um, and just say thanks once again for, for tuning in onto the Property Voice podcast. That's all for this week. But until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over 
to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.